Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, evidence-informed, practical-based. We are at the end of season two. This is the final episode episode number 50, and we're going to round out the year with our 2018 highlights episode with clips from the world expert guests we've had on this year. Always lots of fun for me to review these episodes, phenomenal insights over the course of the year from every guest who are very generous with their time. And of course, last year's highlights episode, season one, episode 52, we had lots of great feedback from So in this season's version, we're going to have a little bit longer clips and add a little bit more to it. So it's going to be a long form highlights episode. I hope you enjoy it. I really enjoy putting these together. I'm not sure my editor does, but I do really enjoy it. I hope you will enjoy it too. We've broken things down into four sections this year. Section one will be athlete health. Section two, I will dive into fueling for training with the guests. Section three on recovery and the last section on mindset. So to kick things off in section one on athlete health, Dr. Fergus Connolly will open things up talking about the human first concept in performance, followed by Dr. Sheree Ma, who will dive into sleep strategies for performance and recovery in pro sports. Next, Dr. Miguel Turibio Mateas dives into the gut-brain connection with some wonderful metaphors to simplify this very, very complex topic. And then Dr. Nicola Guess will round things out to discuss the insulin spike myth, as well as things like the first phase insulin effect and what that means for overall health. Enjoy. Canada basketball, we emphasize this idea of, of human first. And of course, you write about it so well in your, in your book. And um, one of the quotes, we cannot consider the success of athletes separate from their health. Can you unpack that a little bit more for listeners? Well, <clears throat> It, it really comes down fundamentally to the philosophy, um, the belief system of the coaches, sorry, of the organization, which is really a reflection of the, uh, the administration and the coaches. In other words, if you take any ambitious and very driven coach, very driven administration, they can take over any team and drive it very, very hard for three years. Anybody can do it. We can drive teams, strength train, speed train, and you might get short-term success, but you will not get a sustainable success, a program of sustainable success if you don't look after the person, if you don't look after the families of the people, if you don't look after the person, the the loved ones of, of the coaches, of the players, of the staff, because that, that is what you need for sustained success. And coaches who have short-term turnovers and staff or who, have, who drive teams very, very hard end up losing one of two things. They lose the support of their staff. They lose the support of the players. Um, and they don't have repeated sustained success over a period of time because it's when things get, when things get difficult – um, that is when you need their support the most. And, and that's why it's particularly important that you look after the people. And if, you've got, if you have people who, um, you know, who work for you, the most important thing that you can do for them is not look after them, it's look after their family. And that might simply, uh, that's not sometimes directly looking after them, but it's simply making sure that their husband or wife gets home in time uh, you know, on, 
certain number of evenings, at least early enough to see their kids, to see their fa families have evenings off that they can take care of their loved ones. If you do that over, if you do that, now you build an environment where people are prepared to give you more above and beyond because this is a people business. This is not manufacturing. This is not technology. This is a people business where, um, where people matter and what people want to do for you matters when, when, when times get tough. And particularly as a head coach, or as a head of a department, it can be lonely when things go difficult. So you need your staff support when things get difficult. Yeah, so true. I mean, in terms of health, I mean, it's the greatest limiter for our own performance or athletic performance. So it's very true in terms of being able to take care of the people around you. And of course, when we talk about you know players' health or even performance, data is obviously a big part of that. And you know, you write in your book that data is either useful, useless, or interesting. Can you explain? <laughs> Yeah, so when it when it comes to uh, an athlete, one of the things that we sometimes forget is that the ability to play the game at a very high level comes down to um, not just your ability, um, but the experience you can draw on. In order to build that experience, you must be a healthy athlete because you must stay in the game, so to speak. You must play many games at a high level to develop a high level of uh, of experience that you can draw on. That makes you a good player. So, you know, people, the, it's a chicken and egg question. Does a good player, uh, do go are good players good and then play a lot of games or are good players good because they have played a lot of games? And in there are there is a little bit of both, but for the, for the, for the large part, Good players are good because they've played a lot of games. And there are many players who have developed well over time by playing a lot of games. And the reason they have played a lot of games is fundamentally because they have been healthy. And uh, the surge in technology and the surge in data collection has, um, has you know, brought a lot of questions to, um, towards the whole idea of what data is useful, what's interesting, or what is invariably useless. One of the biggest challenges that the sports industry have today are the plethora of technologies and services that are out there and the marketing that goes with them because many companies, whether it's GPS, whether it's force, plate, uh, or force platform data, whether it's heart rate variability, are simply selling a product. And the product doesn't have to work. It doesn't have to be accurate. It just has to be marketed well to get traction. And um, that's one of the biggest challenges that, that we have. Um, forming a model whereby you understand exactly what the technology does, understand what the, the data is going to provide for you, and understand where in the model, where in your model of the athlete and of the game that fits, that's critical to you being able to use that data effectively. And that's, it's, uh, it's, one of the, it's probably the biggest challenge that the modern strength, strength coach or medical practitioner in a professional uh, environment faces. Yeah, I find a lot of teams or strength coaches or practitioners end up you know, accumulating a lot of data and then trying to figure out exactly what the data is telling them versus sort of asking that question first of, of what they're actually trying to, to look for. Is that something that you see in, in, in working with, with teams and throughout the years? Yes, and um, two other things that tend to happen are one that they, because they've invested in this technology, having bought into this, you know, false marketing of a technology company or a um, or a service, that that is who they rely on to help interpret the data. Well, you know, it, it's it's like turkeys voting for Thanksgiving. Well, of course they're <laughs> going to, of course they're going to tell you, you know, they're going to feed you and they're going to support you because they want you to continue to use their product, which is fine, but. 
you know, unless you've done your own independent research and know, you know, you can't rely on these people. That is why, you know, for one, I've never taken or never, you know, uh, been sponsored by a technology company because I don't ever want to feel obliged to support um, any product um, because of just the nature of the industry. It's a, it's, a, it's a very, very dangerous industry to get involved in by endorsing it. But the second problem that many teams end up facing is that they realize the emperor has no clothes. So they have all of these technologies, um, they have all of this data, but it's actually not making an impact and they're scared to actually get rid of the technology now. And what they end up doing is investing more money in it. So a company or a team that has perhaps 15 GPS units and realizes that they're not getting a lot of data or useful information from it, or they've invested in force uh, platforms, uh, don't quite understand what they're doing with the data and realize that just measuring signatures and measuring this wonderful stuff is really interesting, but it's not actually improving performance, end up either buying more GPS units, buying more force platforms, buying more software to, in an endless search to try and put clothes on an emperor that just doesn't have them. So it becomes a, a vicious circle where it just ends up spending more and more money. Um, so again, it's having those, having independent experts who can help you uh, design a performance environment is probably one of the smartest things that you can do when you spend your money, when you're deciding what kind of sports science program you want to chase. I remember in university, you know, rowers, swimmers, and even you know, growing up ice hockey players here in Canada getting up at really the crack of dawn uh, to train. What's going to happen here if athletes have to really get up at you know, 5 a.m. sometimes earlier uh, to, to get their training? And what's going to happen in terms of recovery and potentially performance? Oh, man, the early morning workout sessions are, it pains me so much. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, because we know that depending on the age, right, we are our sleep architecture. So how, uh, how much we need and the stages of sleep, um, that can change during the course of a life. So depending on what age you're referring to, but definitely young adults can have what we call a delayed body clock where they're naturally going to want to go to bed and wake up later. Right, so you probably remember during the college age or high school age, you're you were more inclined to stay up late and then wake up later in the morning time. So that's that can be problematic, right? If we have early morning training sessions where that could be cutting in to get to getting sufficient sleep, right? So if those athletes are going to bed later and they're forced to wake up earlier, you know, I'll bet you're not getting the most productive work or lift session out of them. Um, For sure. I think that that's, that's tricky because we're limited in sometimes the scheduling of training sessions for athletes. But one thing that I have suggested to teams or athletes where this is uh, a common scenario is that there have been studies to suggest that even scheduling uh, periodic recovery days to allow athletes to sleep in um, in the morning time has demonstrated benefits for recovery and, and stress scores. So while, yes, we, we as sleep scientists very much reiterate that um, we want to have regular sleep and wake schedules, this is one helpful strategy that I think can be utilized from time to time. Fantastic. Yeah, it's great to have those, um, you know, obviously in real world scenarios, as I mentioned, you know, as you know, people training sessions are at certain times and you got to work around it. So it's great to have those strategies to be able to incorporate. And this kind of mm -hmm. dovetails into your work, obviously, in professional sports. But, you know, I've recently seen Major League Baseball, you know, we're in spring training now. And I've seen that a lot of teams have started to shift the morning start times to later in the day um, in terms of spring training. So um, can you speak to again to some of the benefits there if, if, if 
teams or staff know that athletes are going to tend to get to bed later? Or as you mentioned, you know, the younger athletes will, will naturally tend to do that. Sure. So I think that's an interesting scenario, particularly in Major League Baseball, as you're referring to in spring training right now, where, yes, there has been, uh, to my knowledge, some shift in some of the scheduling to allow for a later start time in the morning. I, I'm obviously all for it. Nice. Um, baseball is a fascinating sport where they are playing in spring training, you know, early games at one o'clock and they have training sessions usually early in the morning. But then come the end of spring training, there's a sudden shift to night games. And it's a very harsh transition for many of the athletes and staff. And so I think this is one way that they're trying to accommodate a more gradual shift, perhaps, but also recognize that, hey, a lot of these athletes probably are not getting adequate sleep and recovery time during the nighttime. And if it means even pushing back some of the, the start times, half hour, an hour, I think they're starting to recognize that that can be beneficial in the long run. Yeah, it's amazing how we're such creatures of habit. And if we perform at a certain time, then it's, um, you know, the, the benefits of kind of trying to stay on that schedule, which obviously you've seen in your research is so profound. And um, if we circle back to what you mentioned before about circadian rhythms and, and jet lag, mm-hmm. I know you've worked in the NFL. And, you know, can you describe to folks, you know, what's the impact when someone's flying, let's say, west to east uh, versus east to west when we talk about the impacts, uh, potential impacts on performance? Sure. So using the NFL, as you mentioned, as an example, um, there was an interesting study that was actually one of the studies that inspired me to continue work in sleep and sports that looked at the impact of that circadian um, misalignment between East Coast versus West Coast teams. Um, So the rule of thumb is that it takes one day per time zone that you cross to reacclimate your body clock, right? And it tends to be harder to shift your clock going eastward than it is going westward because our body clock is actually slightly longer than 24 hours. And, and we always need that exposure to the sun to sort of lock our body clocks into our time zone. Yep. Um, but the problem is a lot of athletes don't travel with adequate time before they have to play. And so potentially you're competing jet lagged, right? Especially if you're say going east to west or west to east, right? So the study in the NFL Monday night football study looked at 25 seasons and, and basically demonstrated that if you look at the night matchups between east coast and west coast teams, regardless of the coast that you're playing on. If you simply bet on the West Coast team, you'd beat the point spread 68% of the time. That's incredible. Which is, (laughs) right? It's pretty crazy. Um, And the reason why, as we talked about, is because of that body clock difference of three time zones where regardless of the coast, the West Coast team is still playing on a three-hour early body clock, right? And that is what has been... um, shown to to give uh, statistical advantage because that late afternoon to early evening is is the time during the day where performance is typically enhanced. Now, we added actually 15 seasons onto that, and so now we have looked at 40 seasons and used daytime games as the control group and essentially strengthened those findings that about twofold more likely the West Coast team will beat the point spread versus the East Coast team. that's just one study, but if you look at the literature, it is somewhat mixed on the jet lag effects because it often depends on, say, the type of performance outcome you're looking at, the type of sport you're looking at. But I think generally most of the sleep scientists agree that travel and jet lag strategy should be employed to at least provide the best chances for an athlete to succeed when they land in a new time zone and have to perform at their best. 
can circle back for a moment, maybe talk about the microbiota gut brain axis and the different routes of communication along this axis. You sort of touched on a few here, but things like the vagus nerve, the immune system, short chain fatty acids, tryptophan. Can you walk folks through how that, how that works? Sure. So uh, uh, if you think of the brain and the gut as being connected by a cable, and uh, uh, basically there are two ways of communication from the bottom up and um, from the top down. And from the top down, your brain is there, you've got a cable that comes up from the, uh, um, the central part of the brain, the um, hippocampus and the uh, um, uh, hypothalamus, a combination of the two. So you've got various different strains coming from those areas and going all the way down to the gut. And it's a very thin cable, it's almost like, uh, you know, in the old days of uh, dial-up, you know, if you still remember having a lab model. Unfortunately, I do. You know, so if people who are 20 or so probably don't remember that, but, you know, it's a dial-up situation where the connection is really crap and it takes forever to get a page loading on your computer. It's very simple messages. So the very simple messages that go down from the brain to the gut are very binary. They are very black and white. They're very yes and no. So basically kind of a fight or flight response. So either produce cortisol or do not produce cortisol. Um, um, neuromuscular control of peristalsis. So, you know, uh, move the muscle. So the stool actually moves towards the anus and comes out and you have a bowel motion or do not move the muscle. Um, production of serotonin and dopamine. So you've got about 95% of serotonin, which is the happy kind of... Uh, Slightly sleepy, happy neurotransmitter, almost like a hippie kind of situation. You want to hug everybody when your serotonin is high. You know, <laughs> it's, uh, you want to give them a cuddle, and tell them they are lovely, and you love them. That's the kind of like loving, um, happy neurotransmitter. Ninety-five percent of that is actually uh, produced in the gut. And the old school of thought was that it stayed in the gut. It was almost like like Vegas. You know, serotonin happens in the gut and stays in the gut. <laughs> there you go. It's not like Vegas at all. What we're finding out is that various metabolites of serotonin um, actually travel systemically and they do various different things and they end up in the brain as well. And there's kind of like a feedback mechanism between the gut and the brain for serotonin. So, but again, going back to the very simple messages from the brain, what you're getting is gut, you need to produce serotonin or gut, do not produce serotonin. It's like a switch on and off, on and off. Secretion of mucus is the same. You know, there are various different substances that you produce in the in the gut. Um, one of them is like a complex of these things called exopolysaccharides, like complex sugars that make up like a, a layer of or a film on top of your uh, of your gut lining to yep. protect it. And that's the mucus, basically, and uh, and it's got a number of different things. So you see that produce more mucus or produce less mucus. Uh, very simple messages. Now, the bacteria um, uh, in your gut communicate with the uh, uh, with various different receptors in the gut lining and also with the nervous system. So you've got this vagus nerve, which is the very big cable that goes from the adrenals, the adrenal glands on top of the kidneys, those guys that are basically producing cortisol, um, um, adrenaline, or you call it epinephrine or norepinephrine, and you know that those three substances mainly, although they also take over in older age for females and they produce estrogen as well, and they can produce a little bit of testosterone for, for male mm -hmm. and so on. But mainly cortisol, 
epinephrine and norepinephrine. And those are going to kick in when you have to escape danger. So uh, they are the primal kind of uh, um, producers of hormones that have been there from the world go when we were um, early or primal humans and we needed to either fight animals for our life to get food or fight other humans or escape the danger. And they're very, they switch into this area of the brain called the amygdala, which is where you process the very primal kind of feelings, fear, uh, danger, uh, not fluffy feelings like love and compassion and things like that, kind of like very quite, quite brutal feelings, you know, something that you require to do something very, very quick to escape danger or to fight. Uh, so you've got that cable, and we talked about this dial-up crappy thin cable that looks like nothing coming from the brain down. And from the from the bottom up, from the gut up, from the adrenals up, it's a chunky, um, thick brain that's almost like a LAN cable. So you've got broadband connection. You've got <laughs> so really like quickly. It's like fiber. You know, you've got fiber optic. You know, going all the way into the amygdala very quick because it needs to. The brain needs to know immediately that you need to fight danger or you need to escape danger so and to make it a bit more complicated a bit more quirky not complicated probably a bit funky then bacteria actually talk to those nerves that are innervating the whole of the gut that are part of this and enteral nervous system which is connected to the to the vagus nerve they are mm -hmm. collecting bits and pieces of information from the uh, from the environment they are sensing is there inflammation? Is there, um, what about short-chain fatty acids like butyric acid? Is it in plenty of quantity? Is it low? What types of bacteria? All of that information, like big data, is being collected all the time and sent to the, to the amygdala, where it's being processed in various parts of the amygdala. And it does that by, it reaches there by means of molecules like the short-chain fatty acids, like the butyrate, the propionate, and the acetate. Acetate is a bit like, um, like vinegar, it actually is very similar to to vinegar, to like plain vinegar. Mm -hmm. uh, and propionic acid is um, when you get cheese that's got bubbles in the cheese, um, like Swiss cheese, you know, like the typical yep. cheese you see in cartoons or in an emoji. <laughs> Those yeah. bubbles are actually created by bacteria that are kind of uh, farting into the milk yeah. and basically just producing a bubble. Uh, that's propionic acid, basically, that you've got in there. And you've got immune molecules like secretory IgA, which is part of the mucus that is feeding back to the brain and saying, you, when you switch on the produce mucus kind of command, you don't need to produce more of secretory IgA because there is plenty. So there's this kind of like feedback mechanism. There's neuropeptides like leptin uh, that tells the, the brain that, uh, right, so you don't need to eat anymore because I'm actually satiated now. Um, ghrelin and other bits and pieces like that. Serotonin, the same thing. So the brain is producing its own serotonin, but the gut is producing its own serotonin. So, so to avoid a situation where you produce too much serotonin, which is going to make you feel rough because you need to excrete it and detoxify it, then uh, you need to talk. You know, the gut and the brain need to talk so they are not producing too much. So this is all uh, happening uh, at the same time. It's, really a lot of data going from the gut to the brain and the bacteria are key. So you've got low levels of bacteria or low levels of diversity. The communication is going to be more, uh, it's going to be poorer, it's going to be more scrambled, it's going to be more fussy. The brain is not really going to know what goes on so much. If you've got an overgrowth of bacteria, that may be too much noise. 
It's almost like when you run a search on Google and you get like three billion results and you think, shit, what do I do with that? I just need <laughs> one paper, you know, yeah. I don't need like 30,000 papers. Just give me the one paper I need to read. So the brain is a bit like that, you know, can you tell me clearly what is going on so I can do something? Because I'm only able to do yes and no things based on the complexity that I'm analyzing. So that's basically that, that kind of uh, the directional communication between the gut and the brain. I just want to ask you another question around sort of the importance of the pulsatile and first insulin responses in this story of type 2 diabetes. Sure. Could you unpack that a little bit for listeners? Yes. So so insulin secretion is is quite hard to explain because it could mean any, anything. I mean, basically, you're saying the insulin that's released postprandially. Um, but what's really important, seemingly for normal physiology, is something we call the first phase insulin secretion. Um, it can basically be defined as the amount of insulin that is secreted in the first 10 minutes following a rise in blood glucose. So basically, normally, let, let's say when you eat, your pancreas, if it's healthy, is very efficient at detecting any change in blood glucose concentration. So the moment your pancreas is able to detect that your blood glucose has gone up, even 0.3 millimoles per liter, you get this really... Um, powerful insulin spike. And it's where your insulin goes up really fast, really high um, in the first 10 minutes. And that's called the first phase insulin response. Um, so often people use insulin spike in a negative sense, um, like, oh, you shouldn't eat carbs because it will cause an insulin spike. And this is a really, this is a misunderstanding of physiology, because having a, an insulin spike that goes up and then comes down very quickly um, is a very effective way of managing postprandial glucose concentrations because the moment your insulin goes up, it shuts down hepatic glucose output. So your liver no longer releases glucose, which it does in the fasting state. It also um, causes glucose to be um, taken up into the muscles very quickly and very efficiently. Um, it stops lipolysis. So if you're healthy and insulin sensitive, having a, a marked insulin peak is very important for controlling postprandial glucose um, and postprandial fat metabolism. What happens early on in type 2, we see this in prediabetes, the first phase insulin response is basically halved. So yes, you get a response, but it's not this peak that you'd see in healthy people. Um, and by late stage type 2, this differs between people, but it might be 10 years after diagnosis, there's barely a blip. So if you try to measure the first phase insulin response, you can barely see a blip. Um, and let me just reiterate the way we measure this. It's very difficult to measure, which is why we previously haven't known so much about it, is that you can really only get a picture of how well the beta cells are working by either using um, an intravenous glucose tolerance test. So this is like an oral glucose tolerance test, but you inject the glucose into a vein. Um, or a hyperglycemic clamp. Um, and this, I mean, on average, they can be three, three 400 pounds um, in the UK per clamp, um, all in. Um, so they're very difficult to do. They're quite time consuming um, and they're expensive, but they do tell us important things about beta cell function. Um, so that's first phase insulin. Um, and I think you mentioned pulsatile insulin release. Yep. Um, so this actually is even less studied than the first phase insulin response. Um, and so pulsatile insulin secretion basically refers to how insulin in the healthy uh, physiological state is released in a pulsatile fashion. 
Um, so it looks like the pulses might be five to seven minutes apart. Um, and basically, it's just insulin going up and going down and going up and going down. Um, and this is quite normal in endocrinology. So a lot of the hypothalamic hormones do have a similar pulsatile insulin secretion. Um, but its importance is very clear in, or we know that from studies where um, researchers have infused insulin into a vein in a pulsatile fashion. And then they've infused insulin into a vein, the same concentration of insulin, but flat. So removing the, the peaks and troughs. Mm -hmm. And what those data showed is that if you infuse insulin flat, you basically cause insulin resistance, certainly in the liver. Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, whereas if you you infuse the same concentration in the pulsatile fashion, it reduces the insulin resistance. Um, the 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 physiology behind how is pretty incredible. How the pancreas itself secretes insulin in this pulsatile fashion isn't fully understood, but you can even see it in isolated islet cells. So if you take out the islets and you look at them um, in vitro, you know, kind of on the bench, mm -hmm. you can see this almost intrinsic pulsatile secretion. Um, so it's pretty fascinating. Incredible. We don't know, yeah, don't don't know too much about how it goes wrong, but certainly that seems to be a, a defect early in type two. Um, and in fact, you can detect a loss of pulsatile insulin secretion in normal glycemic relatives of people with type 2 diabetes. So someone who's got totally normal glucose, but just has a mum or dad with type 2, you already see this loss in the pulsatile insulin uh, secretion. All right. In section two, fueling training, Dr. Javier Gonzalez opens things up with a discussion around breakfast weight loss, and the second meal effect. This is followed by Dr. Trent Stellingworth, who will talk about body composition periodization and the implications for performance. Next, Jen Saigo highlights the implications for low energy availability in not only endurance athletes, but sprinters. And finally, Prof. Stu Phillips talks evidence-based supplements for athlete performance. Enjoy. Can you talk about some of the work you've done with accelerometers and assessing that activity level between breakfast eaters and people who abstain from breakfast? Yeah, yeah. Well, here, herein lies one of the problems with the observational studies because um, people who regularly consume breakfast are also more likely to lead a healthy lifestyle in, in many other ways, including physical activity. So we don't. this is one of the reasons why we don't know whether breakfast is the cause for this lower body mass in people who regularly eat breakfast because it may be that they're more physically active and it's the physical activity that is is driving this so going to so, the gym going for a run all these things are just embedded into their routine right exactly yeah they're also more likely to eat um more fruit and vegetables less likely to smoke um, and a number of other things too um so this um prompted james betts one of my colleagues now it was before i came to bath actually um to run a, a randomized controlled trial um, to understand the effects of breakfast on energy balance. So what he did was recruited a group of lean and a group of obese um, volunteers, and they were randomly assigned for six weeks to either consume breakfast every day um, or fast every day, um, or extend their morning fast. And, and it was quite an extreme intervention. So the fasting group couldn't consume any stimulating nutrients until midday every day so they'd wake up in the morning they were allowed essentially water only um, whereas the breakfast group um, had to consume at least 700 calories before um, 11 a.m 
Um, so it was kind of a proof of principle. That is a large breakfast. Um, yep. Most people tended to eat a relatively high carbohydrate breakfast too. And, and so we're interested in, in the future looking at whether manipulating the type of breakfast is important. But based on this study, it seems that when people self-select a breakfast, it, it tends to be high carbohydrate. And what, what James found was that um, randomizing people to consume breakfast increased their physical activity um, across the whole day, but in particular in the morning. Um, this was more apparent in, in the lean cohort the, that he um, he studied, um, but it was it was quite a substantial amount too. So um, the the energy energy they were eating was um, at least seven hundred calories in the morning, and the increase in physical activity energy expenditure compared to the fasting group was about four hundred and forty calories per day kilocalories per day. Um, wow. So that, that's quite a lot. Yeah, it's, it's equivalent to, to going to the gym for for many people for about an hour or so. What does the research show in terms of that blood glucose control, whether someone's abstaining from breakfast or eating breakfast, and you know, does it matter if they're actually lean or obese? Yeah, this is something I, I'm really interested in. It's, it's known as the second meal effect, um, whereby your response – so if, if we start off with, with glucose control, first of all. So whenever we eat a meal containing carbohydrates, um, our blood sugar levels or blood glucose concentrations will rise. Um, they'll peak at about, if we're healthy, then about 30 to 60 minutes. And then they'll fall back down again to pretty much baseline by around two hours. Um, and the, we need to control that, that glucose in, in, in this tight range. Um, otherwise, we get a number of complications such as cardiovascular disease and, and damage to various blood vessels. And, and ultimately, we can develop type 2 diabetes if, if blood glucose levels rise too high. Yep. Um, and what's interesting is if we consume a meal um, in the morning, let's say we have our breakfast, then our response, our glucose response to lunch, our glucose control is better than if we'd fasted in the morning. And that's known as the, the second meal effect. Um, we're not fully aware um, of the mechanisms that, that um, regulate that, um, but it could be related to um, improvements in insulin sensitivity. So that is, um, insulin is the main hormone that, that regulates our blood sugar levels. And um, if we're more insulin sensitive, then um, for the same amount of insulin, we'll get better glucose control. Essentially, our, our tissues, such as our muscle, will take up more glucose out of the bloodstream for the same amount of insulin if they're more insulin sensitive. Um, it may also relate to some, some of the liver glucose output. So the liver is constantly putting out glucose into the bloodstream. And what this second, what might happen with the second meal effect is that we get a greater suppression of glucose output from the liver with our second meal. Yeah, you mentioned insulin there. And I think that's definitely one where, you know, obviously today with about two thirds of the population being overweight or obese, and at least in America, some, some of the studies showing, you know, up to 50% pre-diabetic or diabetic. And so this elevated insulin, can you talk a bit about its impact on fat oxidation and what that might, um, you know, hinder then for, for, for folks who are trying to lose weight? Yeah. Um, so a high insulin level is, is, or concentration in the blood is, is one of the earliest signs of um, insulin resistance. Um, and what's happening there is that um, the pancreas, which is the, tissue, the organ that secretes insulin, is, is compensating for the um, decrease in insulin sensitivity. So it's secreting more insulin in order to maintain a stable blood sugar level. But the problem with that is that insulin doesn't just affect glucose uh, metabolism, it also affects 
um, fat metabolism and, and many other things too. Um, and what it does in, in regards to fat metabolism is it suppresses fat oxidation and it suppresses lipolysis. So that's the breakdown of fat in, in adipose or fat tissue. Um, so it's essentially stimulating the pathways of, of fat storage and suppressing the pathways of, of fat breakdown. Um, and there, there is some confusion in the, in the literature and definitely some conflict between um, human studies and non-human studies in this area. So um, there's some work by Jim Johnson um, in using rodent models um, that suggests that high insulin concentrations um, accelerate weight gain in certain models um, and that still may be acting through energy balance. So in those studies, it seems like um, the, the lower insulin level in the blood seems to be associated with a higher physical activity level or at least a higher energy expenditure in these rodents. There's then some human data, um, and Kevin Hall's done a lot of great work in this area recently, yep. um, where under very tightly controlled conditions, drastically changing the carbohydrate and fat content of the diet in order to manipulate insulin concentrations um, can change, um, sorry, doesn't lead to any differences in weight loss that would be predicted by, by energy balance. So essentially, energy balance seems to be key, whereas insulin is is important for regulating substrate metabolism and directing whether we're oxidizing fat or storing fat or or oxidizing carbohydrate if we're if we're purely interested in at least long-term changes in in body weight and fat mass then energy balance is really key yeah 100 percent, definitely the energy balance being so pivotal and so i guess it begs the question for some folks who are trying to kickstart uh, weight loss or if they're they are struggling with uh, you know pre-diabetes or metabolic syndrome um, is there a potential advantage then for whether it's an intermittent fasting eating strategy or perhaps even a low carb to start the day of, of facilitating a, a caloric reduction then throughout the day? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, in terms of intermittent fasting, um, uh, one of our, our PhD students is just writing up his thesis at the moment, and I, I won't steal his thunder, but he's got some <laughs> interesting data <laughs> coming out there too, um, especially in relation to, to physical activity levels on days when people fast versus days when, when people are eating. Um, but if, if we focus on, on the role of breakfast here and, and that fasting in the morning, um, certainly if, if we um, skip breakfast, we don't tend to, at least within the next 24 hours, compensate with any increase in, in energy intake. Um, but we do seem to reduce our, our energy expenditure. Um, that is at least when we're, we're not really aware or conscious of what we're doing. Maybe we can do something about that, though, and, and we might want to con consider performing exercise sessions in the morning. Um, then we're fixing, essentially fixing or prescribing our energy expenditure um, because the, the role, the way in which breakfast is regulating energy expenditure and physical activity isn't through changing the amount of exercise people are doing. It's mainly the, the spontaneous type of physical activity that we're, we're not really conscious of. So just little things like fidgeting and so on, which we could potentially offset if we're aware of that. So if you are looking to lose weight and and I think there are there are various strategies that you can use, and it's probably a case of of trying a few ones and seeing which, which one you you find easiest to adhere to. Um, but if if fasting in the morning is one that you'd like to try, then um, just being aware that your physical activity levels might be lower, and you might have a propensity to to be a little bit uh, lazier, if you like, in the morning, for want of a, a better term. Mm -hmm. But at least you know that, and you can do something about it. 
you know, your terrific research, um, which maybe we can dovetail into now, um, you know, what, what was the aim of the study and can you walk people through the, the setup of the study over this, uh, you know, five month indoor uh, season in elite female sprinters? Sure. So I work with Athletics Canada. So I am fortunate to be able to work with some of the fastest women in, in Canada and in the world. Um, and in fact, to be completely honest, when we started our study, we included the males too. I was I was actually very, very interested to get results on the men. And, and the reason why I was is because I absolutely do see the signs and symptoms of REDS in male athletes that I work with across all sports. Um, I get them in my private practice. I see them in team sports. I see them in individual sports. And um, if I can step aside for one second, there's evidence out there that um, essentially the more that we emphasize some of the things that dietitians like myself would try to encourage athletes and active individuals to do, namely eating a real high quality whole foods diet, the more that you push that sort of dietary pattern, believe it or not, you may drive people more into this state. The reason being that as you eat more whole foods and as you reduce the processing of the foods that you eat, they're more filling. Yeah, you just and get more full, right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So if you have an athlete who has needs of 3,500 or 4,000 calories a day and they feel just stuffed at 3,200 calories a day, well, low energy availability is defined as the number of calories left for daily physi basic physiological functioning after accounting for what you've done in exercise or training. So putting it another way, if you say, uh, I... I burned 1500 calories training today and I ate 2100 calories well you've only got 600 calories left for all your physiological functioning so we know now that as people eat these really whole foods based diets it's sometimes harder for them to meet their energy requirements I had seen this in athletes routinely across like I said a huge spectrum so I, we wanted to see in, in, in both male and female sprinters, does, do we see indicators? Do we see things like changes in blood values, in their resting metabolic rate, their metabolism, um, which might drop because of the loss of muscle mass or because the body's basically conserving energy? Do we see indicators of low bone density? So uh, we, we followed our track team, several members of our track team, um, from the start of their season at the end of the Rio Olympics, starting the 2017 um, cycle through till the end of their indoor season in about April. Um, and we looked at these markers as they changed from the start of the season to the end of the season. And um, to my surprise, we did find indicators of energy availability concerns, even at the start of the season in four out of the 14 athletes that we ultimately um, published on. We ended up only publishing on the females because uh, we didn't have enough males to be able to publish. So basically some athletes were coming into their season already in a state of deficit and showing signs of stress. Um, and then perhaps as no surprise, as the season progressed, those numbers seemed to so basically worsen. Um, in the sense that we ended up with more athletes with indicators, basically half of our athletes yeah, it's amazing how it's, um, you know, back to one of your points there, it's, it's tough for people to parse out this difference between, you know, the general population just trying to eat a whole foods diet and be healthy versus athletes who are really pushing themselves hard and, and have this huge, massive uh, energy intake that they need to consume and how difficult it can be to get to that number. Um, and of course, as you mentioned, oh. starting out the year four to 13 female sprinters, that's really, you know, I think people would assume coming off of an off season, um, that most athletes are sort of ready to go. Is are there some potential reasons that you guys identified as contributing to to kicking the season off with that low energy availability? 
Uh, two of those four athletes, um, because I know them, who they were individually, two of the four of them had just come off their Rio Olympic season. So if you think of it this way, that basically you go into this major event, this this key, key life event, and you're watching your intake and you're training your brains out and you're traveling. So maybe your nutrition isn't as on point as it would be. And you're basically pushing your body as hard as you can is that these athletes, even though those Olympics happened in August, that when we were testing them in November, their body still essentially had not recovered. So it really speaks to the idea that we have to respect the fact that the body does require downtime um, and that you can't reasonably expect yourself to run that, say, hardest marathon and train the most hours you ever have and then turn around and do it again. So um, there, there's a real element here to appreciating that rest and recovery the, the more you ask of yourself, the more that you'll need to give yourself a bit of a break. Um, what was neat was one of those four athletes who came in in a low energy availability state at the start of the season came out looking better at the end of the season. And she fully admitted it. She got very sick after the Olympics. And she said, yeah, I pushed myself right to my very, very limits. Um, but then what she did for the whole season, the indoor season, was she took really, really good care of herself, ate well, um, made sure that she was fueling for her workouts not restricting and she came out looking better at the end of five months of training than she was when she came in yeah it's amazing stuff and you know for folks listening in can you maybe um, identify some of those sort of primary and secondary indicators of low energy availability that you'd see in, in the female athletes sure yeah and female athletes well we do have one really big one that we can use um, and again this this you may be listening you may not be someone who's going to work with athletes that are uh, in an Olympic or a professional sport environment, but I see this in my private practice with athletes, female athletes of all ages and ranges, and that is looking at menstrual function. So in that sense, it could be as simple as um, multiple missed or skipped periods, usually at least three months. Um, definitely, if we see six months of periods being missed, we call that amenorrhea. Um, that's, a, that's a great indicator. Now, for the record, amenorrhea can happen for other reasons too. So you always want to for exclude sure. um, any other cause that may not be related to energy availability. Um, but at the same time, you, you can usually get a pretty good idea if, if a female athlete has a normal period, they go on a diet, slash their calories in half, and their period stops. I can, I can, you know, <laughs> you could probably make a good guess as to why that happened. Definitely, uh, and it's not for some other reason. Uh, beyond that, then we start looking at other uh, indicators, things like low bone density or indicators of bone loss. So what I really watch out for is stress fractures. Uh, if I see a female athlete or a male athlete with a stress fracture, I'm always going to ask the question about energy availability right off the bat. Um, not that every stress fracture is caused by that. It could be biomechanical. It could be a load issue. There could have been mistakes made in training. You could change your footwear. Um, there's lots of causes, but I really, that's something that's a big, big key for me is to start asking hard questions about energy availability. Um, Sends up that red flag, right? Yeah. And you know, what's really interesting is if you look at some of the research out there now on energy availability concerns, it isn't just measuring how many calories the person's eating and how much they're burning. There's indications that even within the same day, what we call within day energy balance or within day energy availability can play a role in this. So as an example, if you take an athlete who is maybe borderline under eating, but what they're really doing is they're, they're cramming all their calories at the beginning and the end of the day, and all their training happens in the middle without very much calorie consumption at all, 
uh, we can see it's almost like the bar for energy availability concerns starts to get raised. Uh, all of a sudden, they'll start to show signs and symptoms, hormonal changes, even when they're, you know, potentially pretty close to meeting their energy needs. You know, yourself, you studied in the case study, um, body composition, periodization in Olympic-level female middle distance runners over a nine-year career. Um, can you tell folks a little bit about how this project came about? And then maybe we can define uh, body composition periodization as well. Yeah, you bet. So um, actually, just before the Skype, I was, I was working on a draft uh, review paper that'll come out in the coming months. Uh, and on a nutrition periodization framework, and it's it's being uh, written by myself, um, Dr. James Morton uh, at a Liverpool University, who's uh, Team Sky's lead nutritionist, and then Louise Burke out of the Australian Institute of Sport. So, so stay tuned. We'll, we're going to try and develop a, a macro, a meso, and a micro framework to allow um, you know professionals in this field um, to ask the right types of questions on on what this might look like. Fantastic. Um, so within the meso periodization of nutrition, uh, meso being weeks to months, um, certainly, or excuse me, macro periodization being weeks to months, excuse me, uh, body composition periodization certainly falls uh, into that space. Um, I did have a tweet earlier this week uh, around a hierarchy of body composition and body composition periodization. Um, I personally think that this should only be attempted and discussed in the elite of the elite athletes who whose nutrition skills and expertise are also elite for an athlete. There's so many other um, things that uh, developing athletes, junior athletes uh, can focus on before thinking and discussing body composition and body weight um, or any of these other uh, constructs as it might actually lead them down a pretty um, poor path around belief effects and body image and and eating disorders and disordered eating. So I I just want to raise that. Great point. uh, that said, with our elites that have good foundational skills, great nutrition skills, um, who who have very good, strong, sound um, uh, 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 examination of their own body image, um, yeah, this is something we, we will talk to them about. And to me, body composition periodization is, uh, to define it, is, is the the strategic and healthy approach to manipulating um, energy expenditure and energy intake uh, so that for the majority of the year, the athletes in, 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 a, in a heavier or a higher uh, body composition state and for very targeted performances of the year, we try to bring them to an individualized performance-specific body composition. There's a bunch of key words in there like health. Health yeah. needs to dictate and drive this. Uh uh, specific words around strategic, specific words around targeted, um, and that uh, athletes, just like they only peak in endurance sport anyways, maybe once or twice a year, um, it, it also, uh, they should only be thinking about having um, performance body compositions once or twice a year. So that's, that's the idea and the concept. Uh, the way this project came about, it was something in the back of my head as an intervention probably starting 10, 15 years ago. Uh, my wife's an international level uh, middle distance athlete. Uh, we had probably 60 or 80 anthro measurements over a nine-year career, 
including performance outcomes, including metabolic testing, including uh, health outcomes, uh, blood work. And so it was, uh, it was pretty easy to retrospectively go back and analyze that and look at um, the fluctuations, the strategic fluctuations in her skin folds and in her um, body composition throughout, uh, throughout her career. Yeah, it was definitely fascinating to see the graphs there and the, you know, the highs and lows and the progressions throughout the, uh, the course of her career. And you know, is this something that's more important potentially for female endurance athletes or just as important in men as well? No, I think it's equally as important. Um, three years ago, the International Olympic Committee got together and, and have reframed the, the idea of around energy availability and, and moved on from the concept of female athlete triad, which a, a lot of folks have heard. And there's a ton of really great science there, and we at, at all uh, should not dismiss it. And, and uh, females have very specific outcomes when it comes to, comes to uh, energy availability. But but the new term that we use now is RED-S, which is relative energy deficiency in sport. Um, it captures uh, both health and performance outcomes and captures both males and females. Uh, we have a publication earlier this year uh, featuring 59 world-class endurance athletes. Uh, I think probably maybe 16, 15 or 20 of them made the Rio Olympics. They're all runners or race walkers. And we studied them up in uh, Flagstaff, Arizona at an altitude camp. And in that cohort, females with amenorrhea, so lack of a men normal menstrual cycle, and males in the lowest quartile of testosterone, so they weren't even clinically low, but they were just in the lowest quartile, mm -hmm. um, had four and a half times the amount of stress fracture, uh, wow. stress fracture rate. And so, um, yes, this is very much as much a, a, a male issue as a female issue. Um, I use the word issue. Um, uh, uh, in fact, maybe I should say gap because a gap is a gift. So if you know if you are amenorrheic or you are a male with lower testosterone, it's not even clinically low, but just in the lowest quartile of of the clinical range, and and you have a history of stress fractures, is a wonderful opportunity to correct your nutrition and and potentially um, um, get your injury rate lower and, and get back on track. Yeah, it's uh, very well said, and uh, actually had Jen Saigo on. Uh, perhaps a month ago, talking about uh, energy availability and, and reds and, and sprinters, so really fascinating stuff as well and sort of more power sports. But um, if we keep talking here on the, on the endurance side of things, in terms of um, you know, benefits from a periodized body composition approach, things around you know, injury reduction, illness risk in athletes, are there some gains to be made there potentially? Yeah, I mean, uh, th there's a whole host of um, observational and correlation-based data, um, mainly in the female athlete triad field, showing um, yeah, females with uh, amenorrhea or, or uh, um, lack of a normal menstrual cycle having significant increases in, in injury and illness outcomes. So, so definitely um, um, that could be something to consider. Uh, I also think uh, in the early 80s, um, Bosco has a couple of classic papers where over a two to three week period, he had athletes chronically wear five or ten percent extra body weight and weighted vests, and so they had to walk around. They had to do everything with these weighted vests on. Okay. And, and I make very, it was like a throwaway line in the, in this in 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 the body comp nine year body comp nutrition uh, periodization paper. It's a I couldn't I add word count limits, but this classic work by Bosco showed just with chronic overload of weight 
um, once you take the weight off, there was significant improvements in, in jump outcomes and performance outcomes um, and, and everything else. And now he, he was putting five to 10% of body weight on and, and that did come at a increased injury cost just in terms of trying to train with weighted vests. Yep. But I think that there's also a significant advantage to training eight, nine, 10 months a year three or 4% heavier, you're training your heart, your muscles, your lungs to carry that extra body weight. It's a training stimulus. And if you run 100K a week, you take 100,000 steps. Each step is three to four, a force three to four times your body weight. You add uh, two or 3% body weight on that. The total amount of neuromuscular load is significantly more. And uh, then when you periodize and, and uh, every single year, you can periodize um, um, the body composition, uh, again, an elite co- concept down for uh you you get a performance benefit just just from neuromuscular loading parameters i at least i believe it and um i think that there's a there's a benefit there as well and a lot of athletes early in their career um high school athletes might lose a lot of body weight and they see they see a performance trend benefit uh, but then they just pin themselves down there they have nowhere to go they get skinnier and skinnier and that's when you run into very significant health troubles um, instead of having a, you know, I, I say that some people, a boost of performance one time in your career, why not be way more healthier and we can periodize it for every single spring and summer, right? So, um, it, 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 it's a newer concept. There, there, there is validation that's required for this, but there's, there's a lot of, um, I think underpinning and logic to this. Um, but again, uh, it's only something that I think the elite of the elite athletes should be uh, considering with their nutrition team and with their health team and and with with a team of professionals obviously caffeine being so uh, deeply embedded in in sport and everyone's mind in terms of performance so you know can you maybe talk about some of the different mechanisms on how it's actually exerting some of those effects yeah i mean i i think that caffeine's undergone i mean it's 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 been around for the uh, a long period of time there's a lot of uh, mechanisms on uh, how it might work i think for a long time people were convinced that it increased uh lipolysis so breakdown of fat tissue and that that somehow spared muscle glycogen i i think most people now uh if they agree with that mechanism they would agree that it's not the most prevalent mechanism, that there actually may be something direct uh, to do with caffeine acting on the muscle per se. But most of caffeine's effects really come uh, from the central nervous system stimulation and the uh, arousal that uh, accompanies that, that, you know, a lot of us enjoy in the morning when we wake up and, uh, you know, kind of get the day going. But for an athlete, it, it, it really uh, does seem to suggest that, um, that's where the most of the performance adaptations occur. Now, I will say this, and it's really interesting, actually, that uh, Nancy Guest, who uh, is a dietitian of some uh, fame in this area, just published a paper in uh, Medicine, Science, Sports, and Exercise showing that actually your, your genotype, so what types of genes you have for your ability to be able to metabolize caffeine, some, somehow uh, determine the fact of whether you're going to benefit or not. So it's, it's worth looking into. For some people, they get a bit of a buzz from coffee, but they don't get a huge performance boost. Uh, for some people, they get a moderate boost. And then uh, other people, it's like, you know, it's like rocket fuel. But it seems to be the, one of the most consistent performance boosters that we came across. 
Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. I uh, had Nancy on the podcast last year, and she'll be coming back to talk about some of her new research, and it's uh, it's really interesting, that genetic side of things. And um, Yeah, there you go. I mean, it, you know, there's the other layer that, um, you know, I, I think we're beginning to sort of peel back, and, you know, Nancy and uh, Ahmed's research uh, are uh, right at the hotbed of sort of looking at some of these genetic polymorphisms and their role. So, uh, yeah, again, uh, I... <laughs> You know, as much as we know, then uh, we're beginning to learn more and more about something different as well. And how do some of the uh, dosing strategies potentially differ then if you're more endurance-based bout of exercise versus something like repeated sprints when talking about caffeine? Yeah, you know, I think when you look at caffeine historically, you're really looking um, at doses when people sort of, I think, thought in the lab, you know, we really need to see an effect. And so there are doses as high as nine milligrams, uh, you know, uh, per kilogram uh, body weight, for example. And I think a lot of work now suggests that you can get down to probably as low as between one to three milligrams per, uh, per kilogram. And again, this is the, the pure caffeine form, uh, so not, not a cup of coffee. And um, I don't know that it differs an awful lot between uh, you know, with with each respective sport, but it appears that, you know, it's a pretty low threshold. And I think that there was a concept for a while that if you were a habitual caffeine consumer, that you needed to withdraw yourself from caffeine. And, and again, most of the recent research has suggested that's, that's not the case. Uh, so you don't have to skip that cup of coffee uh, for it to have its benefit or, or, or take your caffeine capsule or, or whatever it is. So, um, it's a pretty consistent uh, effect, and I, I think settling around three milligrams per per kilo body weight is really the the dose that's sort of a sweet spot. Yeah, definitely. As <laughs> folks get up towards five or six, even you start to see, you know, potentially some of the effects of, of of getting too much caffeine in the system. And of course, you guys write about the pairing caffeine with carbohydrates during exercise. You know, why is that so important? Yeah, you know, that, that work comes, uh, a lot of that comes from Louise Burke and her work down at the Australian Institute of Sport. And uh, I think the carbohydrate provision stories uh, have been out there for a long time. And really what you're, what you're doing is providing yourself with an alternative fuel source, from, uh, if you like, liver standpoint. So you're, you're acting as a surrogate liver. Um, and the provision of caffeine yeah, yeah, used to be thought of as just a pre-exercise strategy, but sure, certainly during exercise is a time when uh, Louise and her crew uh, were looking at cyclists and actually found that it, they got a little performance boost um, even during the event as well. So the, the old story was that the cyclists were drinking, you know, defizzed uh, Coke yeah. um, and saying, Hey, we're getting, you know, we're getting a lift from this. And then you, you know, Louise and her crew said, well, it's, it's the sugar that's in the Coke. Um, but there's, you know, not an insubstantial amount of caffeine that goes along with that. So, uh, lo and behold, uh, again, the anecdotal field test cyclists were, were, uh, feeding back turned out to be, uh, when you, when they tested it in the lab, that exactly the way things were working. So, there's, uh, you know, practice informs science, and science goes back and informs practices. Absolutely, and talking about that science informing practice, you mentioned before dietary nitrates. You know, can you talk about some of the mechanisms that play there to support performance? Yeah, no, these are. This is the kind of new kid on the block. I yep. mean, I, I always joke with people that uh, if you'd have told me 
maybe now five years ago, uh, but maybe six or seven years ago, you go, you know, beetroots are going to be the next big thing in performance enhancement. I'd have laughed right in your face and I said, <laughs> not a chance. Um, but beetroots in this sense are, are really, they're the vehicle for uh, the conveyance of, uh, of nitrates. And the nitrates, to remind everybody, really come from the soil. So uh, an interesting um, uh, anecdote here is that Andy Jones, who's the guy sort of behind the, the, the big beetroot craze. Andy like, beetroot. Yeah, Andy mm. beetroot. Yeah, I, I, he will tell you that if there are beets that are grown in, in nitrate-poor soil, they're not quite as effective as, as uh, beets grown in nitrate-rich soil. And, of course, there are lots of other sources. Um, we call it arugula on the other side of the Atlantic. They call it rocket. Um, but if you eat a lot of arugula, you're getting a, a, actually per, per gram of arugula, you're getting a lot more nitrate. How it actually works, there's sort of two theories. One is that it's uh, enhancing uh, nitric oxide production. And nitric oxide, I, I think, uh, if you don't or, or, or if you do know, but it's it's a vasodilator, so I'm increasing blood flow delivery to the muscle. But there's a, a group of uh, Swedish researchers that have shown that nitrate actually acts at the level of the mitochondria to improve mitochondrial ATP uh, production and efficiency. And I'm not sure where the science lies on which of these is the best or, you know, the the theory that's sort of bearing fruit, um, but it could be a combination, and in all likelihood, that's probably where most things tend to lie, uh, of those two mechanisms. Um, Trent Stellingworth would be the first to, to uh, remind me that to tell you that uh, the more elite people get, the less effective though those things tend to become. So uh, I'm not saying it's uh, not a, uh, a good strategy, but I'm, I'm sure, again, that you tend to get these responders and non-responders um, at the highest level. Some people swear by it. Other people are like, yeah, it did nothing for me. Absolutely. And is, you know, is there a duration of exercise both that uh, is best supported there in terms of timing or dose with the, the dietary nitrates? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, again, it's sort of, it, it's, um, I would say, sprint-ish um, up to middle distance. Um, long distance events, uh, I think, are more uh, equivocal. But um, again, these sort of 400, 800, 1500 meter type events are the, or those are the events where uh, most of the performance advantages have been seen. And, and, and similarly, whether it's uh, running or rowing or, or anything like that. So um, not too long. Uh, I would call them, yeah, I mean, sort of, the, they're, they're grueling. I mean, it's a sprint, but it's just a very long sprint. All right, we're into section three, recovery. In this section, Greg Knuckles talks the reality and myths of training periodization. Next up, Mike Robertson will talk about working around movement dysfunction in athletes, as well as some of his pillars of sound conditioning programs. From there, Dr. Chris Bellon will talk about sprinting and share some of his favorite drills that he performs with athletes. And finally, Dr. Sean Arndt talks about biomarker testing for assessing athlete recovery. Enjoy. And today at the moment, yeah. in terms of the research, you know, if, if we stick to this discussion even around powerlifting, where does the theory meet the practice? 
Yeah, so that's that's a good question. So after uh, after kind of teeing myself up, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? You should go for it, sure. Okay, so after kind of teeing myself up and, and shitting on periodization for about the last ten minutes, um, there is there is quite a bit of research looking at uh, periodized versus non periodized training for uh, strength development, and if you look at that body of research as a whole. Um, it does pretty convincingly indicate that periodized training um, does lead to faster strength gains than non-periodized training. Um, however, I have some issues with the methodology used. Um, so in the vast majority of those studies, what you'll basically see is two programs. Uh, the non-periodized group, um, non-periodized basically means that none of your major training variables, volume, intensity, etc., uh, are changing over the course of the program. And periodized means that at least one of those variables and generally both of them are, ch- are changing over the course of the program. Uh, generally what you'll see is the non-periodized group is doing something like uh, three to four sets of 10 reps or three to four sets of failure at uh, 75-ish percent of one rep max for 12 weeks or something like that. Um, and the periodized group is generally starting a little bit lighter than that. So 60, 65% for three or four weeks, uh, 70, 75% for three or four weeks, and then like 85-ish percent for three or four weeks. Um, So over the course of the entire training program, uh, total volume is the same. Average uh, intensity percent of one rep max is the same. Um, But if you look at, like if you look at it through the lens of training specificity, Um, you would expect that the group that is allowed to train with heavier loads would gain more strength. Um, So then when you look at that research, you're seeing larger gains with periodized training, but you kind of have to ask yourself, like, what's actually driving this? Uh, Is it due to periodization itself, or is it just simply due to the fact that the periodized groups are allowed to train heavier than the non-periodized groups are? Um, And I think a lot of it is down to specificity. Um, and so, you know, there were like 30 or 40 years of studies that were basically conducted like that. Um, and then just recently, like late last year, uh, there was a paper that personally I feel gave uh, the fairest direct comparison between periodized and non-periodized training. So in that paper, um, the periodized group would train with sets of... Eh, and if I'm getting some of these details wrong, they're, they're at least close enough. No worries. Um, we can link to the paper as well in the show notes. No problem, Greg. Okay. So the periodized group was doing like sets of 15 one week, sets of 10 or 8 or something the next week, and then sets of like 3 to 5 the week after that, um, and then repeating that twice. And the non-periodized group was essentially doing all of that within a single session. So uh, the periodized group, they were doing, say, week one would be six sets of 15 to 20 reps. Week two would be uh, six sets of eight to 10 reps. Week three would be six sets of three to five reps. The non-periodized group um, each week would be two sets of 10 to 15 reps, two week, or two sets of eight to 10 reps, two, two sets of three to five reps. So um, not only matching average volume and average intensity, but also allowing the non-periodized group to train with three to five reps the same way as the periodized group did. 
Um, Also peak intensity, which I think is very important from a specificity perspective. Uh, And it found no differences in strength gains between the two groups. Um, So, yeah, I think at this point, um, the best argument that could be made in favor of periodization is that um, is really more one of pragmatism than scientific superiority, if that makes sense. Um, and by that, I mean, like, if you kind of step beyond the lab and just think about how it is to train in the gym, uh, if you're in a high volume training block and you're, you know, trying to build some muscle, uh, on your frame to then support larger strength gains later on, uh, you know, you're, you're probably not going to want to do a whole and also lift pretty close to your max in the same session. Uh, or at least most people don't like to do that, even though that's kind of what the whole like West side system is based on and they've been pretty successful. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a, you can use some of the periodization principles to just kind of practically set up a training program that you will like to do and that kind of makes sense and feels good to you. Um, but from, from kind of a scientific perspective, as long as you're matching peak intensity, uh, with periodized and non-periodized training, I don't think that periodized training is strictly better. Um, I, I honestly think the biggest benefit from it is just it helps people stop from being bored, um, which which honestly, isn't that is a non-negligible benefit. Um, non-periodized training basically means you're doing the same stuff every time you go to the gym week in and week out. Um, and some people love that. Uh, you know, they like to have written down in their notebook what they did last time, try to do that exact same workout, but beat it in some way. Um, Other people, myself included, if you told me that's what my training was going to look like, I'd shoot myself because that that sounds so monotonous and boring. Um, So yeah, that's, that's kind of, kind of where I stand on it right now. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fascinating stuff and amazing to see where, you know, all the new research is is shedding some, some more light in these areas. And, you know, if, if we take a, Firm example, perhaps, of you know someone who's periodizing a plan as, a, say, a power lifter compared to someone who's playing a team sport, like maybe a football player or a rugby player. Can you talk about some of the, the differences or maybe the factors that you might consider them when you're building those plans out? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, to this point, I've, I've mainly just been talking about stuff um, purely from the perspective of strength development, which is kind of my bias because that's that's kind of the world that I live in. I do think it probably has more utility for um, team sport athletes. So, so basically, powerlifting is a weird sport in that it's incredibly simple. Um, you need to be able to squat a lot, bench a lot, and deadlift a lot, um, and you know some pretty good exercises for, or a, a pretty good way to get jacked and build muscle in kind of the places that are going to contribute to squat, bench, and deadlift are to squat, bench, and deadlift with a lot of volume, relatively heavy. And lo and behold, that's also a really good way to get to just get stronger and build strength in those lifts. For sure. um, so that doesn't really necessitate that complicated of training. Um, compared to, you know, let's say soccer, or as most of the world would say, football, or football as we Americans know it, or rugby or basketball or anything else, um, you, you need to be strong enough. You need to have enough muscle on your, on your frame, uh, to be a little bit more resilient to injuries. 
you need to be in good aerobic shape, you need to be in good anaerobic shape, and you need to be able to produce a lot of power. Um, and a lot of those things are kind of contradictory. So you're doing a ton of aerobic training, probably not going to be able to build all that much muscle, and especially not going to be able to develop power that well. Um, so then it does become a little more challenging to organize all of those uh, characteristics you need to develop without having them uh, interfere with each other and without just, you know, basically allowing your total training volume across all of those modalities to just get so high it, it wears you into the ground. Um, so, yeah, I, I think periodization, kind of the typical uh, traditional periodization approach of working on conditioning in, in like the deep off season adding in some more just like general strength and hypertrophy, like base building work uh, later in the off season. And then as you get closer to competition time, kind of cutting back on some of your conditioning work, cutting back on some of your general strength work and working more on power and more so like general sp or like specific sports skills that are going to transfer the most directly to your actual competition. Uh, I do definitely think there's some utility in that. Um, just because you have so many more balls you have to juggle. How do you build some physical qualities when movement qualities are off in some of these athletes? Yeah, you know, and that's such a great question. I just actually had this discussion with uh, this young man who's a PT student with Bill Hartman right now. And he said, you know, like, what are some of the tougher situ situations you've been in? And I mean, this is like the worst case scenario when, say, somebody has a time constraint in the fact that they have to be ready for camp in six weeks, right? But when they show up on my doorstep, they're an absolute train wreck, <laughs> you know, from a, yep. from a movement quality perspective. So this is where I think it really comes down to the art of coaching. You have to figure out, okay, what exercises can I do that are still going to prepare them for the forces they're going to see them in their sport for the velocities for the movement demands while at the same time building them some modicum of movement reserve right so a lot of times we see guys and they come in and let's say a football player comes in and he's got zero degrees of hip internal rotation or negative five degrees you know you may not need 40 but you need more than zero like you can't sure. even get in a stance or you can't even get in and out of a cut so you know, in this case, to try and get some of those movement characteristics or, or train some of those physical qualities, you have to find things that maybe aren't as contextual to them. So here's what I mean by that. A lot of the, the guys that I, I train that are very stiff and they're very rigid, they tend to be very patterned when it comes to symmetrical bilateral lifts, like, say, a squat or a trap bar deadlift. So if I put them in those positions, they're only going to go back to their old posture or position. So what I have to do is I kind of have to reframe what they think of as challenging. So a uh, great example, a couple of years ago, I had uh, an NFL tight end came in kind of this same situation, like not a ton of hip rotation. If I put a bar on his back, he would just really arch his back hard, throw his pelvis forward, and ultimately couldn't squat the way that I needed him to. So instead of just continuing to try and back squat him, I said, okay, let's just change the rules of the game. So we moved to a heavy two kettlebell front squat. And all of a sudden, now this guy doesn't have a context for what heavy is, right? 
Like for if, sure. if it's a back squat, something he's familiar with, he knows, oh, if I'm not squatting 405, I'm not, I'm not pushing enough weight. Versus here, he just knows, oh crap, this is like heavy. Even though it's only like say 232 kilo kettlebells, oh my gosh, I feel my abs, I feel my quads, I'm squatting deeper than I ever have before, and my hips don't hurt. Right. So I think that's one of the big things is trying to find ways to number one, shift context. And then number two, being creative. Like nobody said that if you want to be a great athlete, you have to barbell back squat. So you can two kettlebell front squat. Maybe they can't do that. Hey, can you push a prowler that's heavy and and work on driving and work on hip separation and extending your hips? Can you drag a heavy sled? Can you do hill sprints? You know, there's so many ways if you get out of the mold of just thinking about what can I do in a weight room? And you kind of put that constraint off yourself and you say, what can I do to just build a better athlete based on what I have in front of me? Then all of a sudden you're forced to be a little bit more creative. And I think that's where you can really see some cool changes, even even though you're not using maybe some of the exercises that you or they are most familiar with. Yeah, very well said. I mean, still too often you see some people trying to sort of pound the square peg into the round hole with, you know, yep. forcing those patterns. So great to great advice there great tips on how to sort of work around that and be creative so important and um you know continuing on this tale sort of basketball preseason you'd, you'd recently written in one of your blogs um around being at a recent pro day a combine and and shocked really at how many of those amazing athletes didn't really understand movement angles can you talk yes. a little bit more about the importance of linear and lateral acceleration and deceleration yeah i mean well first off if you play sports acceleration in a lot of ways is the name of the game like I think 100%. top end speed, pe- people are enamored with it, and rightfully so because those people have just phenomenal nervous systems. But so much of sports happens in a very small box, right? So like in, in the world of basketball, it's a lot of times you're in like a five or ten square foot space. You know, can you create separation? Can you can you close down passing lanes or shooting? You know, angles, positions, whatever. So this is something that with my athletes I'm constantly coaching is can you find the best angle to push from to accelerate fluidly or can you find the best angle to stop from? And and again, as Lee Taft always says, it's not just about deceleration. It's about then reaccelerating. But I think there's a couple things that I see. Either number one, people are only taught to decelerate, right, which isn't probably the best thing because – the positions and the angles you get into are totally different when your only goal is to decelerate versus to decelerate and then reaccelerate and come back out of a cut. Right. So that's, that's one issue that I see. But the other issue that I see is again, people just don't understand like the concept of like the line of push. Right. So people may understand it intuitively going straight ahead because I feel like linear acceleration has been beat up pretty good. But when it comes to like lateral acceleration, when we're talking about a basketball player, you know, you kind of want a little bit wider base. So you're nice and stable. So you can be able to plant and move in any particular direction. You can get that nice push through the whole foot. And and again, using a leak. A Lee Taft term, you know, kind of driving that lateral gait cycle yep. is so important. And, and I just find a lot of these guys, they don't understand it, but the guys that I've worked with are generally higher levels. So, you know, either just a simple cue from me or maybe putting a band on them, which forces them to lower their center of gravity, 
widen their base of support a little bit, then all of a sudden it's like now they're in the right position and then they can naturally push the way that I want them to. So it's one of those things where it's an element of literally every training day that I do. And again, keep in, keep in mind, my world is a little bit different because it's kind of clean and tidy. If a guy's training for like a pro day or training to get into a training camp, he's generally pretty dedicated. So we can have a Absolutely. theme each day. Monday can be lateral acceleration. Wednesday can be linear. Friday can be change of direction. So that makes it easy. You know, like some of you that are listening, I guarantee you're like the guys that run our athletic development classes at IFAS. It's kind of like a hodgepodge mix. You're trying to do a little bit of everything every day because you don't know how often the kid's going to come in, what days are they going to show up. You know, so it's a little bit harder when you're in that environment. But in my world, like literally every day, 15 to 20 minutes up front, as soon as we warmed up, as soon as we're ready, we're going to train on, I don't, I don't just think of it as movement quality, but movement skill that's contextual to their sport. And to me, there's nothing more important than being able to accelerate and decelerate your body in all those various planes that you'll be in, in your sport. You know, as athletes move into that second phase in your experience, working in so many different sports, um, you know, how does that look in terms of how it might be different between one athlete, one sport versus another? Is it, is it still somewhat similar in terms of how you would progress that? Or, or is there some changes now as you get into that second phase? There are definitely more changes. And like everything else, you know, everybody works general to specific, right? So in the beginning, to be honest with you, almost every single athlete, I would argue every single athlete would benefit from doing basic acceleration work, right? And obviously it might not be super sport specific to have a uh, soccer player come out of a crouch start because that's not something that's super sport specific. However, I'd argue that the first three steps of acceleration from a standstill will still give you a massive benefit from re-accelerating out of a change of direction. So when you start progressing from the basic to the more specific, that's where you might start taking some of those basic things, kind of working the procedural memory development aspect of it and preceding uh, the skill based a little bit more on sports specificity. So while you might be dealing with some sort of acceleration or basic acceleration in the beginning of the training program, uh, as you get forward into the training process and a little further along, I mean, it's pretty much going to be dependent on the demands of the sport. For example, you have somebody like a soccer player, they spend most of their time reacquiring acceleration position. So it might be accelerating from coming on the move, change of direction, uh, unplanned changes of direction, whereas somebody like a volleyball player, that might be a little bit different. We might be focused more on um, accelerating from different positions out of a different type of change of direction. So it really does take on a little bit more context specificity and sports specificity the further into the training process you go. Absolutely. I mean, definitely something with basketball players is uh, you know probably similar to volleyball players in terms of the different demands um, and how that might differ from sports like like soccer. And um, Last year, I had uh, Derek Hansen on talking about you know sprinting, and um, I'll actually read another quote here from a paper you sent over because it sort of dovetails into what he'd mentioned, which is, you know, contrary to intuition, fast and slow runners take essentially the same amount of time to reposition their limbs when sprinting at their different respective top speeds. Hence, the time taken to reposition the limbs in the air is not a differentiating factor for human speed. Rather, the predominant mechanism by which faster runners attain swifter speeds is by applying greater forces in relation to body mass during shorter periods of foot ground force application. Um, awesome, Chris. Can you break that down as well for listeners and talk about stride length and stride rate? 
Heck yeah, man. As uh, Peter Wayans quote, I believe from uh, 2000. And that was an awesome paper. And one of the things that comes out of that paper is just the relationship between kinetics and kinematics. And uh, Dr. Ken Clark, I was fortunate enough to have him on uh, my dissertation committee. He was my outside committee member, uh, has a phenomenal paper out there uh, linking the relationship between kinetics and kinematics. And what's been pretty clear is that there is a strong relationship between the way an athlete produces force and the kinematic outcome. And if you take a look at the way somebody produces force, for example, a soccer player, um, while their, their swing time of their leg isn't all that different, because they tend to sprint more upright, their, the, the way that they strike the ground, it's a little bit more vertical in nature. So they don't accelerate as much uh, in those first three steps as well as somebody like a track and field athlete. Obviously, a track and field athlete is going to have a much more anterior lean torso. So the way that those guys produce force will out just across the board change the way that they move kinematically. And uh, I actually saw that in my dissertation, and I'm still in the process of publishing the third paper. But one of the things I did was I actually compared these sprint kinematics um, or different sprint metrics, uh, such as step length, step frequency, and ground contact time between stronger soccer players and weaker soccer players. And the interesting thing was for soccer players, there was actually no statistical difference in stride length between stronger and weaker players. Wow. Where, the, where the, uh, the big difference seemed to show up was step frequency was a lot higher and ground contact time was a lot lower. And, you know, surprise, surprise, the stronger athletes were faster. We kind of knew that going in. I wanted to figure out why. So mechanistically, the way that they put force into the ground changes the way that they, uh, they manifest their sprint metrics. So there is a definite relationship between the two. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely fascinating stuff. And especially, you know, as you get further down the rabbit hole, trying to understand how all this is playing out. And, you know, if we zoom back out a little bit for, for listeners and trainers, um, you know, Maybe you can give a few examples of, you know, acceleration, max velocity, and speed maintenance exercises that uh, um, folks could 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 use or implement with their clients. Sure. I mean, I think really just like anything else, it's kind of similar to the weight room. Everybody agrees that the basics work. Um, you know, if you're talking about resistance training, the vast majority of athletes and coaches, they agree that a squat and a deadlift are beneficial. If you get really good at the basics, things like a sled toe, things like teaching an incline sprint well, those are all things that will massively be beneficial to an athlete's acceleration. You know, And those are things that you could sprinkle in throughout the course of the training year. So my big staples that I typically use are sled towing as well as incline sprinting, particularly early in the training process. I don't think you can go wrong with those for just about any athlete. And mind you, they like anything else, they have to be coached well. For sure. But those are definitely my bread and butter in terms of my acceleration. Um, in terms of the change of direction, uh, just like anything else, landing mechanics, right? I mean, that's kind of step one. And there's a, a, an easy progression. I think uh, Lauren Landau has done a great job at the last few uh, NSCA conferences kind of revealing his uh, deceleration and change of direction progression, which to be honest with you, it's just fairly logical progressing from landing mechanics to planned change of direction to unplanned changes of direction. Um, it's more so about the actual sequence in which you put the drills than the drills themselves that are important. Awesome. And how about things like in terms of max velocity, are there different 
um, strategies that you lean on there? Uh, yeah, honestly, I don't touch max velocity as much with a lot of my athletes because, to be honest with you, at the Division three level, like 75 per 80, maybe 80% of the training year is voluntary. So the time that I have my athletes is often very, very limited. So I try to put more of my eggs in the acceleration basket than the max velocity basket. But realistically, I like to do uh, similar to what a track and field athlete might call a float, fly, float. So you have, you know, red cone, green cone, red cone, green cone, where they're accelerating at the green cones, and then they're kind of maintaining or floating as soon as they hit the red cones, and then they're re-accelerating at the green cones. So trying to make sure that they get some more time at top speed without having to build up all that time to reach it every single time. So float, fly, float is something I've done a lot with my soccer players, uh, some baseball players as well. Um, and obviously doing things like a step over run, the basic things on a wall, uh, fast claws and whatnot. So some of the basic rudimentary drills, but the more applied drills are something like a float fly float. You know, on the stress hormone side of things, if we look at these, you know, you mentioned the biomarkers, where are we at at the moment in terms of, um, you know, the reliability of, of certain biomarkers in terms of whether it's, you know, is that functional overreaching, non-functional overreaching, overtraining? And can you share some of the key biomarkers that you guys are have found to be more valuable? Yeah. And actually, let me start with this to, to put it into context for that. So I think if you look at some of the research data on overreaching and overtraining, you know, there's, there's quite a bit of divergence in terms of does this biomarker really correspond to it? You know, are biomarkers useful? And, and it's been a, a mixed bag. But I will say this, too. I have a real problem with the current state of the overreaching literature or and what some have actually called overtraining, which I'm sorry, if you bring somebody to the gym for four weeks and you just crank up the volume, that's not necessarily overtraining. Um, and I think one of the things that, that we've hit on that I think is really, really critical in all this, if you use the current research uh, basis to, to try to um, formulate some recommendations for this, lab-based studies are incredibly contrived when it comes to overreaching. They, they are. They're, they're highly fallible because you've now taken out a majority of what also contributes to an athlete's stress. It's not just about training volume. You know, it's about sleep, it's about their diet, it's about the travel stress, it's about team dynamics. It's, you know, take your pick. You know, the body's not going to distinguish when you have these higher levels of stress. And so I think that, that going on some of the previous studies where these are two and three and four week studies and they go, oh, wow, the biomarkers didn't really change. You know, I don't I honestly don't put a lot into that in terms of stock because um, that's not even close to a real world example for an athlete especially when you have an athlete who might train 20 plus hours a week, but also goes to classes and also has two flights to catch this weekend for a for, for back-to-back games, you know, things like that. So what we found was, you know, as we started to get a handle on training load, we started to find that training load became pretty consistent across players. Um, we were getting, you know, good data on, you know, number of sprints, on accelerations, on time spent in different training zones and things like that. But it didn't fully explain the biomarker changes. And all of a sudden we started to layer on some other factors, including sleep quality, more so than quantity. Quality was a little better predictor. Yep. Well, we started to see some of these things actually start to match up with the biomarkers. But more importantly, the biomarkers started matching up with performance, especially power output. So when we start to look at it, you know, there's a number that we rely maybe a little more heavily on than others and others that what we're doing in our research, though, is we're trying to identify where we can start to put these into buckets. So rather than looking at sort of an isolated uh, biomarker here and there or whatever, 
given that you do have individual differences, we are trying to cluster these in a way that gives you sort almost more of a heat map in terms of changes yep. and, and what we're seeing. But certainly cortisol, and what's interesting is we're finding more utility in free cortisol than total cortisol, uh, uh, matching up to some of the performance markers. Same thing with testosterone that we've seen it both with total and free there. Um, we actually had some interesting results this year with IGF-1 and growth hormone and the relationship to certain uh, uh, power outputs and body composition as well, but also strength, Interesting, uh, which was pretty cool. Um, that, would, that, would, that was a little surprising in terms of how, how strongly they were related. Um, but then when we start to look at things like iron, omega-3-6 ratios, uh, vitamin D, ferritin, um, you know, those all become uh, relatively important for us. We look at creatine kinase. While I know it's a surrogate for muscle breakdown, some of the data on its utility even compared to MRI is actually pretty good. But what we try to do is we standardize when we do our blood draws. So, for example, uh, with the women's team, we'll do them roughly 18 hours post-match. Post so we've got – they normally play either a Friday, Sunday, or a Thursday, Sunday schedule in season. And so then Monday morning, we will do resting blood draws. And we do that once a month because everybody always says, how do you control for menstrual cycle? And you're like, you, you, well, you don't. First of all, it's a female athlete and you're not going to control for it. But what we do is we account for it. And so we try to actually make these draws every 28 days um, so that it corresponds to what the normal cycle would be so that the fluctuations we're seeing – are a little more likely real world and, and, and linked with the menstrual cycle. Um, but we've taken the same approach with the guys as well, you know, every 28 days, 18 to 20 hours after a game um, and looking at it that way, because then what we start to track are recovery properties as well. Uh, we've integrated IL-6 into some of what we're doing. We do see changes in that over the course of a season. And I think that one of the things that surprised us that has been so remarkably consistent in terms of change and it corresponds to heaviest training loads is T3. Um, so even with thyroid hormone, or, yeah, we, we were starting to see some of these things that, that took us a bit by surprise um, in terms of how consistently they do match up to periods of, of really jacked up load. Uh, more than anything else. But I, I'd say, you know, cortisol, uh, the catecholamines, we've found some good predictive ability with those over the last two seasons. Um, you know, those those we tend to rely fairly heavily on. Uh, but it's not like we're not looking at other things as well and trying to decide um, what might be moving the needle and what might not be uh, to try to filter through noise um, and come up with more of the meaningful stuff. But certainly, you know, we've probably got 8 to 12 that we heavily rely on and another 14 or 15 that we use when we start looking at immune system and things like that. Fantastic. We are into the home stretch here. Section four is all about mindset. And George Carvajal will kick things off talking about his philosophy for training athletes. Followed next by author Amit Katwala, who talks about neuroscience of what happens to the athlete's brain when performing under pressure. And finally, to wrap things up in this 2018 Highlights episode, the renowned Dr. Peter Jensen talks about the pitfalls of perfectionism and the power of reframing. I've been following your work, George, for, for quite some time, uh, since my days back in strength and conditioning, and you know, I really appreciate a lot of the insights that you bring in terms of training philosophies so maybe we can start off the discussion here with, with some of the, your big rocks, so those guiding principles that you've developed along the way. So 
and I always believe that everybody should have at least some philosophy and some principles that you follow. And I, I really switched mine somewhere around midway through my career where I was very, uh, my philosophy dealt with, you know, the, the program design, how do you train athletes and, you know, rate of force development and ground reaction forces. And it was this language that people didn't understand. And I realized that people didn't understand because I was treating athletes as athletes and not as people. And once I switched that focus and that viewpoint and started treating athletes like people first, then everything changed. And that's really my philosophy in, in a nutshell is people first is I try and learn about the individual first and likes and dislikes and, uh, what it needs to, to get buy-in with them, which is really the beginning of, of a trusting relationship. And then we can move through the X's and the O's and the board and program design and all that stuff. But um, I started with, and everybody, it doesn't matter what facet of you know sporting world it is or tactical, uh, military, surfing, doesn't matter. For me, the philosophy is really simple. It's people first. And I'm, I'm in a very, 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 um, very blessed a very grateful position to be in and that I can be very, very selective in who I work with. Um, I no longer just take anybody. I can be selective. And so as you're vetting me, I'm also vetting you. And I'm doing that because I want it to be a relationship where it's continuously give and take and that we can, we can complement each other. And sometimes it doesn't work. And sometimes you realize you're not good for each other. And I think in the industry of strength and condition, we're working with athletes Especially if it's a professional athlete, you know, everybody seems to, we'll just take them on because it's a professional athlete and I can put them on Instagram and, you know, I can sure. build my brand and stuff like that. And, and th nothing wrong with that, but I think the mistake is sometimes you realize that uh, you're not right fit for each other. And that's really important because if you're not, uh, buy in is not really uh, something happens. Really, it's not solidified because there's not a lot of trust because you don't really care. You're just getting a paycheck. Um, and they're just writing a check. So in simple terms for me, it's, it has to be, you have to think about the individual and not necessarily just the sport and is where you're doing transferring. That's all well and good, but who is this person? Um, what are they like? You know, do they honor their commitments? Do they come on time? Everybody thinks that working with pro athletes is, it's, it's not what you think it is. It's a lot of it is babysitting it is, uh, you would think that at that level guys show up and train and, um, are really dialed in and the answer is not really sometimes you have to make phone calls and hey are you awake are you coming to training and that's anybody who hears this that works with pro athletes understands and has had that not in their heads yep they, they understand that and that's listen it comes with the territory uh, part of that is entitlement and you have to understand that that's part of that world and if you're okay with that then you're okay but it's it's very different. It's not what you think it is. So, and that's why again, it's it's not just them vetting me, but me vetting them. And um, I don't I don't want to babysit at this point in my career. I want to make sure that if you're coming to train, that you you have a commitment, uh, not not to me, but to you. And that means that you're willing to do what you need to do to stay in the game. It's not necessarily getting to the game. They're already there. It's what you need to do to get into the game. And that again, it goes. It's a long way, long wind back to people first. You know, if we look at things from the other end of the spectrum and sports where there's a lot of uh, time to think about things, uh, sports like golf, and of course in your book you mentioned a study where, you know, depending on whether 
professional golfers were going for you know a birdie to improve their score or just a par there was markedly different things happening in terms of brain function can you walk folks through that yeah so so we talked about kind of how as you learn a skill it becomes more and more automatic and uh, the prefrontal cortex kind of cedes control to the the basal ganglia and other areas of the brain so what happens when when athletes are under pressure what can sometimes happen is actually that you know they get nervous or you know they get stressed and the prefrontal cortex kind of seizes control again of something that should be automatic and this fluent kind of skill that you've developed over years of practice suddenly becomes as if you're doing it for the first time you suddenly revert back to thinking about every move and that's not what you want to do if you want to perform a skill like putting uh, reliably and consistently you don't want to be thinking about it too much and uh, yeah overthinking it is again just the result of the prefrontal cortex kind of interfering butting in or like hijacking uh, what should be an automatic skill yeah it's amazing how in sports like golf i mean i know a few years ago um kevin na professional golfer in the u.s he was he couldn't even take the club back without um you know forcibly having to to have three or four or five attempts at, at just taking his backswing which you know as you mentioned would have been something he learned when he was three or four or five and uh, of course the yips in golf with putting as well and other sports like tennis that sort of first serve where there's just so much time to think that the that part of the brain can really get involved and really throw athletes off um so the yips are actually really interesting from from a neurological perspective as well because um, and I think we're going to come on to this in a minute, but uh, the, the yips are almost a, a result of not quite of kind of being under pressure. They're almost a result of your brain changing too much. Um, but perhaps we can come back to this when we talk about neuroplasticity. Um, the the, the um, example I always think of of, of kind of this uh, prefrontal cortex uh, seizing control is Jordan Spieth a few years ago was, you know, miles ahead. Um, I think it was the US Open, I can't remember. And um, you know, suddenly in the last like you know nine holes, just completely collapsed and end up losing. And it's just a classic example of you know absolutely fine until the pressure is, or you know until you're inside of the prize, and then you start overthinking it, and you just lose the ability to do the simple skill. And what are some strategies then that um, you know whether traditional strategies or strategies now with with technology that can help to athletes to overcome some of these pitfalls? So traditional strategies are just. Uh, you know, things like whistling a tune or, you know, singing to yourself in your head, things that keep the prefrontal cortex busy so it doesn't interfere. Um, there was a really interesting study um, done on penalty shootouts. So they basically got uh, a group of uh, semi-professional footballers to take penalties either in an empty room or in front of a crowd. And they obviously, in front of a crowd, their performance generally deteriorated because of the pressure of being watched by their friends and peers. But they found that if they got the uh, footballers to squeeze a, a squeezy ball in their left hand, then that performance uh, deficit disappeared. You know, they were as good as they had been the day before in an empty room just because they were squeezing a ball in their left hand, uh, which is, you know, there's all these sort of like quirky things you can try and do to keep your prefrontal cortex occupied. You talk about some tools in your book to help with energy management and this idea of the skill of reframing. Can you sort of describe that for folks and maybe give an example of a potential exercise? I'll describe by way of a story. So I was at the World Figure Skating Champs in Paris, France in 1989, and I was out of a rink uh, that the competition was being held in, the main rink. There was a, a rink right beside it, something we're familiar with here in Canada. And, uh, and I was working with the pairs. And right next door, uh, Kurt Browning, uh, 
had to uh, skate his figures. At that point, they had figures and figure skating, where you would go into the arena, it was dead silence, and you had to trace an eight or a, whatever you were tracing, and, and they marked it, you see. And, uh, and has since left figure skating, but it was part of every competition, uh, which has been... And, and, and the judges could really control that part of it. So uh, more than a few skaters got screwed by their marks. And, and I mean, think of Brian Orson. He won the short program and he won the long program in Sarajevo Olympics and he finished second. That's incredible. <laughs> How does yeah, that happen? Yeah. Well, because they screwed him in the figures, yeah. you know? So, so uh, anyway, I'm back to the story. So, so Kurt comes out and um, normally when you skated figures, it was like 6 a.m. in the morning. That's where you practice them in your own rink. And uh, it was always dead silence and things. But of course, at a world championship, all of a sudden there's 100 photographers with cameras and things like this. And so I said to Kurt, how'd it go? And he said, oh, he said, uh, not good at first. He said, I pushed off. And all of a sudden, all I heard was click, click, power bar, power, power winder, power winder. And, and, and I said, what did you do? He said, I said to myself, well, if this many people are taking pictures of my figures, I must skate really good figures. <laughs> nice. And that's an ultimate reframing. You know, like you look at the situation, which you may or may not like, and you choose the frame you want to put around it. You know, if you're listening to this, if you think of any painting or picture you have in your house, and the minute you change the frame, you take off the blue frame and you put up a black frame, different information gets highlighted in that picture. You start to see the blacks if the frame is back. If you put up a green frame, you'll start to see the greens. Uh, each frame highlights different information in the picture, but you know what? The picture never changes. You know, we're still, uh, the deadline has changed for the project. Uh, my, my oldest daughter got home late last night and I got to speak to her about it. Like, the situation hasn't changed, but you can find a frame that fits. You know, uh, I remember a woman when I was going through my cancer treatment program 10 years ago, I met in the waiting room and, and, uh, she, we used to see each other on a fairly regular basis, and one day I was talking to her, and, and she said, um, you know what my cancer has taught me? And I said, I, I didn't, obviously. And she said, my, my cancer has taught me that normal optimism will not do. I'm not in a normal game, so being normally optimistic is not very helpful. I said, what does that mean to you? She said, I had to upgrade my ability at being optimistic to deal with what I was going through. And so things I used to take for granted, now I make a big deal out of them. In other words, I change the frame. You know, life chooses the information, but you choose the frames. Um, you know, uh, Viktor Frankl, uh, who wrote Man's Search, Search for Meaning, talked about this when he talked about how in the concentration camps, you know, they could take away everything from you, but how you chose to look at things. But that is something we always have within our own control, even in horrible situations we do have some control over how we choose to look at something. Terrific. Well, that's it for 2018. Really appreciate everyone tuning in today and all of your support this year. We've uh, doubled our downloads this year. So massive thank you to everyone for subscribing, sharing, tweeting, posting. And of course, I'll say again, massive thank you to all the world-class expert guests uh, who take time out of their busy days to come on the show and share their evidence-based insights and wisdom. So really, really humbled and grateful to them for taking the time. And of course, in 2019, lots of exciting things on deck as well. Uh, we've got a new video podcast series that's set to release in the spring. So keep your eyes peeled for that. 
I've also got my manuscript for my new book coming out in the spring-summer of 2019. So if you're enjoying all the experts and their insights on this podcast, I think you're really going to love the book as the goal is to really connect you and take a deeper dive into all of their tremendous, tremendous insights. If you want to stay tuned with all this uh, information, then definitely check out the newsletter. You can keep tabs there or follow on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Thank you again for tuning in all season long and to this highlights episode. If you have any questions about any of these topics or for me or want to leave a comment on today's episode, then definitely reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. Of course, if you're enjoying the show, please take a minute, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, or your favorite podcatching platform. And thanks again, everyone. Have a fantastic, fantastic new year, and we will see you in 2019. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.